Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Line Podcast. I'm Aaron Salvato. And I'm Brian Higgins. And we are here with the one, the only, I assume, Sarah Yardley. The only one I know. <laughs> the only Sarah Yardley I know. It would be a way weirder intro if we were like, we're here with one of the 7,346 <laughs> Sarah Yardleys. <laughs> I want that intro. Can we, can we make that happen? Uh, yeah, sure. Brian, go ahead and do it. On today's episode of the Good Lion Podcast, we are here with one statistically different person, but very similarly related to many other people, Sarah Yardley. <laughs> Slay. You slayed that. I feel so affirmed, right? I feel seen. I'm keeping this all in. Um, Sarah, welcome to the show. Can I, can I read your bio that I stole off of the Calvary Chapel website? I can't wait to hear what I have to say about myself here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so Sarah Yardley is a Californian based in Cornwall who loves Jesus, family, friendship, coffee, travel, and guacamole. Very important detail. Uh, She grew up at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, served at Reality Carpinteria, and currently lives in the United Kingdom, serving full-time as the director of Creation Fest UK. She loves discovering what it means to follow Jesus and inviting others to know and follow him. How's that? Is that an accurate bio? Does that still stand? I don't know when that was written. 95% accurate. Do you know the only change is that technically my title for my visa is Mission Lead at Creation Fest, which, you know, (laughs) no one really knows the difference. But other than that, all these things are true. And the guacamole is a strong passion point of mine. Okay, I was hoping it wasn't that that was the change. Oh, <laughs> it's like, I no longer like that. guacamole. <laughs> Kick me off the podcast. There you go. Um, so here's a few things just from me. Sarah is incredibly kind, hilarious, a gifted preacher, and has a heart of gold. There's my four bullet points for you. I, so. I'm going to rework my bio, Aaron. I just, <laughs> thank you. Just add that in. Yeah, put that on the back of your, uh, your book, right? Sarah yeah. has a heart of gold in the bio. Hello. <laughs> I was hoping you'd hear those extras and go also 95% accurate and then find one piece to kind of tweak a little bit. I actually have a heart of silver. Well, you know, one of my favorite lines, I was mentored by a pastor named Britt Merrick. And he said, if you think I'm a sinner, you're right. And it's worse than you thought. So so the 95% (laughs) is actually less than 95%. There is no heart of gold. Jesus is the only heart of gold. And uh, if you thought I was a sinner, you are right. And it is worse than you thought. Wow. What a what a perfect statement to end this segment on. <laughs> so Sarah, one of the big things that we want to talk with you about and kind of think through is trusting God in the midst of change. Now, you recently came out with a book called More Change: Navigating Change with an Unchanging God. I just finished reading that. It was super refreshing. I mean, it, mm. it had like the the whole time it felt like it had the tone of like the gentle kindergarten teacher who knows how to calm down the whole class. And like <laughs> my soul was just a chaotic kindergarten classroom. Mm. And I was like, mm. I will sit and fold my hands. Like I will kind of <laughs> let some of the tension melt. Like It was super comforting to, to read through that book. As we kind of dive into some of the ideas in it, can you just give us the quick three minute version of some of the changes in your life that led to the writing of that book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what a lovely description. I I now feel both slightly as though I I was present with you in the reading of it. And hopefully there's a piece (laughs) that that carried. 
Um, I wrote the book in the same way that I would write so many of the things that I, I create, which is expectant that both my friends and my future friends would read it. And so I think that kind of disarms and creates this vulnerable honesty, which says, here's where I'm at in the journey. I haven't figured it all out, but Jesus has been kind to me and I want to show his kindness to others. So the book itself came out of uh, 38 years of walking with Jesus and particularly having navigated some pretty extreme inner and outer changes in my life. So some of the inner ones just came around the, the sense of knowing who Christ is and what that knowing of Jesus does in our lives and hearts. Um, but alongside that, I was a very geeky homeschool student. And <laughs> apologies for all the homeschoolers who are listening. We think you're cool and we love you. And so did Jesus. Mm. But um, I was Amen. just wore my grandma's clothing, thought makeup was for snobs, had literally <laughs> no music other than Rich Mullins and Keith Green, which no one listening to this podcast will have Heck heard yeah. of. And Heck just yeah. CCM music charts were my jam. Like who needs the Beatles if you've got CCM there for you? <laughs> um, and went from this very like protective homeschool, knew all the scriptures environment into living in post-Christian UK context where I found out that not only had my life, but my vocabulary and my examples and all of my cultural references were totally off base. <laughs> and alongside that kind of transformation from quite introverted to quite outward focused, some of the changes that I experienced came from living in one location at Orange County, California, born and raised, just thought everyone went to a mega church and had baptisms in the sea <laughs> into traveling to 92 countries. And as part of my life in the UK, realizing actually not everybody goes to church or thinks Jesus <laughs> is cool or uses the name Jesus in ways that are worshipful. We won't go too far down that road because, you know, we'll be careful here. Uh, but it, <laughs> it just really took me through this change of perspective, of culture, of identity. And the anchoring thread that ran through my life the whole way through is that Jesus Christ was the same God of love, God of kindness, God of tenderness towards me. One of the, the opening pages of my book has that beautiful scripture, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And I found that in a world where so many things around us are changing and so many places in our own hearts and lives might be changing, that the genuine and faithful love of Christ has been the anchor. It's been the bedrock onto which I've built everything. And I'm so grateful for his unchanging love towards me. Love that. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I love hearing change stories that just show the hard contrast of beginning and end of like, mm. here is every possible way that things could be different. And I, I think that's so fitting for where we are in the world right now, because compared to two years ago, there are still a lot of things that are the same. But the, the journey to get us from where we've started to where we are now feels like everything is up for grabs. Hmm. Nothing is constant. There are very few things that you can really genuinely rely on. And, and I'm sure that in your own change story, there have been moments where change begins as uncomfortable and then transitions into something beautiful and wonderful. And wow, Lord, I can totally see your hand on this. As you were going through some of those changes... How did you draw the line between this is change I'm adjusting to and this is change that I'm struggling with? Because I, I definitely find in our current cultural moment, I'm a very slow processor. I don't know what I feel for weeks, sometimes months. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I am angry about that. Like, I didn't realize that I was angry about that one meeting. <laughs> and with so many things going on, 
it's like I don't know if this is just kind of the the weariness of adjusting that's happening or if I'm trying to deny a change or I'm trying to resist it and reject it and say, no, Lord, take that one back. We're not doing that one. How did you kind of navigate that within your own heart? Yeah, it's interesting. So one of the chapters in my book is about slow changes and one is about fast changes. And I've experienced a little bit of both. Like there's just been moments where change has felt violent. And I think the phrase I use in the book, which is still one that I would use in daily conversation, never with any exaggeration or hyperbole, because I would never be given to that. Um, It's just that there's moments where you feel a little bit shipwrecked by change. You've got the kind of storm tossing, complete uncertainty. And there's the moments where we, we look around at the cultural moment in which we find ourselves or the friendships or the transitions or even this really deep sense of loss. I think we we need in this moment to give space to grieve the loss of what we have transitioned from mm-hmm. as we move into a new era. There's moments where those changes seem really violent. And then alongside that, there's moments where you really want something to change, where you're desiring it. And that could be a relationship or a job or uh, someone's transformation of soul. And you've mm-hmm. been waiting and praying and expecting, and there's nothing that you can see that is happening. Mm-hmm. And so I think in, in both of those two moments and those two extremes, because we'll have listeners who might be in each of them, in the slow changes, I've really found the parable of nature to be beautiful for me. Mm-hmm. There are just moments where you plant a seed. And if you were expecting the fruit to come tomorrow, you would be foolish. And so in the planting of the seeds and and of expecting that if I know and I'm confident that my own relationship with Jesus is strong and some of what I get to do right now is literally just plant the seeds. There's this beautiful line from a John Mark McMillan song that says, shall I plant sequoias and revel in the forest of a crop I know I'll never live to see. So my body to my maker and my heart out to my savior spread me out on the road and the rock and the weeds. There's moments in the cruciform Christ-centered life where we are just sowing our hearts and souls into something and we might not ever get to see the fruit of that moment. And then alongside that, there's moments where we just are kind of living through this shipwreck and this turmoil and trying to discover what does it mean to follow Jesus in the midst of that moment. And in both of these things, I feel like the answer in some ways is so simple. I don't want to be trite, but you called me a kindergarten teacher earlier, so I'll be the kindergarten teacher. (laughs) It's intimacy with Jesus. Hmm. It's allowing your soul to dwell so deeply in the presence of Christ Hmm. that you know that your intimacy with him allows you to be sensitive to the leading of his voice and of his spirit. Um, And I've recently finished reading this beautiful book called Letters by a Modern Mystic by Frank Laubach. And it's about a missionary in the 1930s to the Middle East. And he said he called Jesus to mind one second of every minute. Just Jesus Mm. Christ, what would you have to say to me today? One second of every minute, that became his discipline. And so I found that one, intimacy with Christ. And then secondly, just being in deep relationship. First of all, with Christ, but secondly, with others. Those two things have continually reoriented my soul. And neither of them are a band-aid. They're not a quick fix solution. They're not a complete reorienting, but the reality is in those places where I know I am disoriented, I find reorienting when I look to Jesus and then allow myself to live in the places of deep relationship, both with Christ and with his people. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, really good. Um, You know, one thing that you said that struck me was about 
wanting change to come too fast at times and the necessity of remembering that we're planting seeds. That, that was something that for me, when I did youth ministry, I had to really come to grips with that over time because I remember wanting my students to be at a certain place spiritually. And then the Lord kind of hit me with it one day and he was like, Hey, think about when you were 17, were you where you want them to be when you were 17? No, it it was a slow burn. And there was things that your youth pastors and I had like six different youth pastors. There was things that they said, there was things that they did that didn't click until you were like 25, 26 doing ministry yourself. That's when the Lord brought that back. So I think that's, there's a lot of wisdom there. And I think in our own life, we, we want change to not be as violent. Like you said, we don't want change to be as harsh. Uh, Brian and I have both went through uh, a lot of change over the last couple of years. We, uh, were both long time, long-term youth ministry guys at our churches. Um, I, I was doing youth ministry and I, I started when I was 16 volunteering and became a youth pastor at like 21 and did that for years. I mean, I, I felt like I just lived in that youth group and the youth group very much became my family. Um, and so I think when it comes to navigating change, well, it has to include community. The Bible tells us we find safety in a multitude of counselors, but sometimes the hard part of the change is when your community changes that, that was, that's been the hardest thing for me. My youth group that I was, it was, I mean, I was a part of that youth group. I attended it. I grew up in it. I volunteered in it. I eventually pastored it. Like it it felt like family. I had volunteers that were, you know, in their early twenties married, but when they were kids, I was their volunteer. Like I, I was their counselor. And, and so to lose that, it's been a hard thing for me. It's, it's been a huge transition. I, I know Brian, you've, you've gone through similar things. Um, we've, we've both been through some massive changes in this season of life. And so my question for you is, as you deal with change. What were some of the most helpful things that people did for you to help you with that change of community? Um, like what were some of the most helpful things that people in California did for you when you were leaving? And what what were some of the most helpful things that the people in England did for you in, in your arriving? Mm. It's a great question, Aaron. And, uh, it's interesting. I think it's the first time I've ever been asked that question, which just commends you guys just asking killer questions between the two of you. Um, but it, it's interesting how rarely it is that we reflect on those kinds of things. I was particularly blessed in California because I had a robust and a wide community. It was an unrealistic expectation that I would have that kind of community in the UK, but because I'd only been over at large scale gatherings or events, I kind of thought just everybody hung out with their 2000 closest Christian friends and then the harsh (laughs) reality of a life in post-Christian UK culture in a a fairly deprived um, town was was a harsh transition. Hmm. So I think one of the, the most beautiful things that my friends in California did was just checked in on me regularly. And this is where an interesting kind of side note that anyone can relate to is the beautifully double-edged sword of social media hmm. actually became a tremendous gift to me. So yeah. we can all talk for hours about some of the perils and dangers and not letting our identity be sucked into that. We're here for that. But the reality <laughs> is that 
because I had the ability to stay connected with people on social media, I never felt like I was lost to my friends in California because they quite often just send me very little, like not along what's everything happening in your life, but just short moments of sweet encouragement where I actually in some ways feel that that relationship and those, those um, communities are deeper in some ways because mm. I know who's praying for me consistently, even if they don't see me in person. Mm. Um, in a UK context, it, it took me a little while to cur- culture translate <laughs> the welcome and the family. Um, I literally just got off the phone with one of my British friends and he said to me afterwards, I'm cautiously encouraged by this. And I said to him, <laughs> this literally, this sums up my seven years here. No one, no one's excited. People are cautiously encouraged. Like It's the most British phrase I can think of. Uh, and, and he said it <laughs> non-ironically. There was no irony in that statement. It was just his way of affirming the conversation that he was cautiously <laughs> encouraged. And so one of the things that I've learned by being here, that's it, actually something I feel really passionate about, is that the American church is a gift to the British church. The American church and our sense of kind of enthusiasm and freedom and wide open spaces and (laughs) all these things can be a real gift. But equally, and actually for me in in many senses far more, the British church is is a gift to the American church. Because actually, once you build a friendship with someone in the UK, that friendship for me has been so true and so faithful and so deep and so authentic. And if they invite you over for a meal, they want you to come to that meal. Um, There's no hyperbole around those invitations. Hmm. And so I think some of it came around resetting my expectations. Uh, For anyone who's in a season of change or transition, for me, that has been one of the hardest things, not expecting the chapter that is to come to be like the one that came before. Uh, But secondly, recognizing that if the family of God, as we believe theologically, is in every place the family of God, that some of the deep heart resonating things that allow us to connect and form community, they're not defined by our cultural expectations, but they're defined by a sense of the character of who Jesus Christ is. And so I began to look for those who are wise or gentle or tender or lowly and to experience and create space to really listen rather than Mm. coming in with my preconceived set of expectations. And in doing so, I have found some of the truest and most faithful friendships that I could have ever dreamed or hoped for. Mm. And in those seasons of change where it does feel quite tumultuous, being fully known and fully loved creates a real anchoring that has helped me from feeling adrift in seasons of change. That's beautiful. I, that like, that's so encouraging to me because it's affirming things that I've gone through. Um, because for me, like the, the crossroads I had to come to was realizing that things were never going to be the way that they used to be. Like that was hard for me to let that die, to be like, okay, I'm not going to be the youth pastor at Calvary Vista again, most, most likely, unless something weird happens in the next 10 years. But, um, you know, that same relationship, like if I ever went back, all those same kids would be grown up and moved on. So it's like, things are never going to be the way that they were. That was a very special period of time. I'm very thankful for it. And so allowing that to kind of die opened me up to the reality of what could be. And and it's exactly as you said, um, I've been just messaging some of my old students on social media and just saying, Hey, how can I pray for you? And sometimes they message me. I got a, a sweet message from a kid, uh, when we found out that we were pregnant and they were like, Oh my gosh, I've been praying for you for like the last three months that you guys would get pregnant. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, it's a blessing to hear you articulate that because it's like, it's something that I've gone through, but I haven't really pieced it together in my mind. So yeah, thanks for that, Sarah. Yeah. 
a pleasure. And I, I think there's a reality isn't there of any time of change and growth. You wouldn't want things to stay exactly as they are. Like we, mm. you wouldn't want your former high school students to be frozen in time at age 18 playing no. around with whatever they're playing around with. Like I, that would, that I do want the them to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> we want them to grow up and, and that change, even though it can be a forceful and violent, it stretches our souls and mm. we never regret that stretching. Mm. Yeah. I think it's such an important point how much we focus on what is different about a prospective new community. You know, I, I remember when my wife and I moved to California for a year, grew up East Coast, started hanging around California people. And I thought, why aren't they mean? Like, why don't they get my jokes? Like, why isn't there more sarcasm out here? When they ask like, oh, we should hang out sometime. And I go, great. What are you doing Thursday? Why do they all go like, oh, I don't know. Like, it, and I got so we're caught chill, up bro. in. We're chill. Uh, apparently, yeah. I, I didn't. I remember one time, the first time that I realized being from the East Coast really affected the way that I did things and I didn't realize it. I was at Reality LA. I was probably like early 20s. And I just went to walk to the bathroom at what I considered my normal speed. And I almost knocked over three people walking at a regular <laughs> California speed. And the first time I was like, fluke incident, no big deal. The second time I thought, what's going on with these people? The third time I finally thought maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> that's when it, it finally started to click that, that maybe I was doing something wrong. But when we moved to California, my thinking was, I just have to find people who are like me. Like, okay, I'm the weird one here. I'm the one that doesn't fit in. That's fine. There has to be at least one other of these. Like there has to be at least a few people that I can hang on to instead of thinking there's so much to learn from even personality diversity. Like one of the things I've been thinking about recently is if we are truly the kingdom of God, then any other difference should be welcomed in that kingdom. You know, if we're the kingdom of God, but we also have to agree politically, then maybe we're a political kingdom. Mm. Like if we're the kingdom of God and we also have to agree on race relations or we have to be of the same ethnicity, then maybe we're just one ethnicity and we're not the kingdom of God. If we have to be the same socioeconomic status, if, if we have to have any other form of agreement, then it's it's possible that we're building our unity on that thing instead of on I have Jesus, you have Jesus, that is all we need. And everything else you bring to the table that's different, instead of seeing it as a threat or seeing it as something that will ruin our unity, we can instead see it as, well, Jesus has that in you. What can I learn from it? I have this other thing in me from Jesus. How can I share that with you for your benefit? Mm. And I think that's one of the, the beauties of true community, isn't it? And and one of the things that we sometimes miss out on if we don't allow ourselves to be stretched outside of our, for lack of a nicer way of saying this, comfort zone. And it's, mm. it's phenomenal to me how many people's friendships center around common interests or common likes or common experiences or common coffee shop loves. And I love <laughs> all of those things as well, but I'm really grateful. Actually, one of my closest friends and I write about this in the book, he just sees the world totally differently than I do. And mm. at first it was a point of tension between us because almost always we would just get into a small fight. And then I realized actually I'll benefit by hearing why he thinks this way because mm. he's wise and he hasn't persuaded me on everything, but on many things, he's persuaded me to see the world slightly differently. And mm. some of that has just literally been the widening of my heart, the places where I would have been quite closed 
and would have mm-hmm. seen things through one very distinct perspective. It's just opened my heart to see, to hear, to listen, and to love more generously, which feels like the way of Jesus to me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's that's precisely why I felt convicted to maintain, I, at least in my mind, I attempt to maintain close relationships with a few uh, just choice friends that are non-Christians uh, and even a few people that I've grown up with and we grew up as Christians, but they're no longer. And they've told me like, yeah, I don't believe that stuff anymore. I've, I've tried to maintain my friendships with them because I, I think so much in ministry, we can sit around and talk about non-Christians and just assume things about non-Christians and, oh yeah, they believe this, but we're not talking to them. And so for me, it's been like, I, I want to broaden my heart and my mind, and I'm not necessarily going to change my convictions on things, but I want a deeper level of understanding because when I'm trying to minister to people who don't know Jesus, I want to understand where they're coming from and what they're feeling and they're thinking. And that's a, a hugely significant point because b- before I moved to the UK, so seven years ago, all my friends were either Christians or backslidden <laughs> Christians. I don't know, yeah. like pick, pick whatever category you want to have for that. And then you move to a post-Christian country and the reality is you're either going to have a very small group of friends or else you're going to mm. need to start cultivating some wider friendships. And some of my closest friends today are not followers of Jesus. And the way that they've sharpened and polished, not just my thinking, but my vocabulary and my conversations widened my heart. They know that I love Jesus Christ, that he is my Lord and Savior, and that his name will be in almost every conversation we have. And yet I genuinely care about and listen to and want to engage and hear where they're at and why they're there. And, And I found those friendships so enriching for both my soul and for my writing and for my ministry. Yeah, well, and isn't it interesting that when you're prepping to go on a missions trip, a lot of times if it's a foreign country, the the strategy that you're given is like you need to study the culture, you need to study what they're about and what they think so you can become a good cultural missionary. But then very often growing up in the church in, in America, we're told like, oh, don't hang out with the wrong crowd. Don't like just just go to church uh, every, you know, go, go to the Wednesday service, go to the Friday service, just all your free time, hang out with Christians and don't. Uh, and I there's there's wisdom, of course, when you're young and growing up to making sure that you aren't spending time with people that are going to pull you down necessarily. I, I've seen that happen before, too. I've seen some youth kids uh, in my youth group try to be missionaries and then get pulled into all of the same nonsense because they weren't going into it with the mentality of you know, guarding their heart, I guess, to use a super cliche uh, term. But uh, yeah, anyway, the, I don't know where I'm going with this, guys. I don't know where I'm going with this. And we're, we're here for it with you. And, and I think that wider question is a really important one for the 21st century kind of secular age culture. I just went mm. on a fascinating training series and, and I'm currently reading Live No Lies, which is John Mark Comer's new book. And mm. he's addressing the question of how do we engage in a secular culture with the gospel story? And his answer is actually know the power of the world, the flesh and the devil. Like it's, it's basic Christianity 101, but the mm-hmm. way that he engages with the conversations and the questions that are surrounding us. I mean, you're getting quotes from everyone from Billie Eilish all the way through to <laughs> um, a little bit of Orwellian uh, dystopia. So you've got kind of both of those two extremes. And I think one of the realities is learning to be a people of discernment. Like that, that's mm-hmm. really, to me, a huge portion of that. And so I'm thankful that for every friendship I have who's stretched and challenged and widened my heart, 
that I still have a, a community who've really anchored me in Jesus Christ mm, because then those ones, they help me correct those places where I might have broadened my theology too much or liberated mm. my practice too freely. And mm-hmm. so I think having that community of centered on Christ followers around me is of so much value and importance. And, and that would be what we would both commend old, young, anywhere in between, right? Like have your community who draw your heart's attention to Jesus, yeah. but then let your friendships be as broad as the spirit might guide you to. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the beauties of talking about the way that California friends have been able to stay connected, (laughs) even if it has been in these short snippets at times. I know for me, as I have learned many new things about walking with Jesus in the last five to 10 years, some of the most helpful people in that have been the newer friends that have come along the way. And some of the most helpful people in that have been the people that remember my walk with Jesus from the beginning Mm. and are able to see me start grappling with a new idea and go, is that really you? Like that, that's Mm, something you never would have thought about five years ago. Explain to me why you're moving in that direction. And like you're saying, Mm. they can be that sharpening and you know, you need new friends to broaden horizons, but you also need old friends to narrow them from getting too wide, like you're saying. It's and true. Ryan, hopefully you found a few people who have the gift of sarcasm in California. I, I know that they exist. They, they take a little bit of work to find, but... We've, we found a couple. We did find a couple. <laughs> Some of them were East Coast transplants, so we were just kind of like... It, it it reminded me of like when I think of immigrants coming to Ellis Island and they were like, this neighborhood's all Italian. I'm just staying here. And like it, it was kind of one of those things that we found a little bit. You we just like found the New Jersey expat, pocket. Yeah. Expat communities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we would just kind of like re- remind each other of the old world and things like that. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, Brian, because I consider you, you know, one of my closest friends. But uh, I don't I, I'm doubting that I'm one of your uh your sarcastic friends, if that makes sense. Do I fit that bill? You're, you're not one of my sarcastic <laughs> friends. You... I'm, I'm like your warm, cuddly friend, right? Yeah, you're... <laughs> I, I, I love going back to the, the line. I forget which Batman movie it is, but I love going back to the line. He's not the friend we deserve, but he's the friend we need right now. Like you, you bring a warmth and a kindness that I don't have that at times is concerning to me. Now now I feel like I was just fishing because it's wrong to me. (laughs) No, no, no. You're, you're doing, Uh, you're doing good. Well, that's very sweet. Guys, it's just like a real vulnerable moment in your friendship. Do you guys want me to step out for a minute just so you can have a little second? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. This is going to be just an us episode now. So sorry, everyone say bye to Sarah. No, just kidding. So moving us back to the topic of change right now, it feels like our world is waiting for a change back. You know, we've had all of these drastic changes. We initially tried to convince ourselves. And I remember being one of the people that thought, sure, a COVID lockdown is happening, but it's three weeks, you know, like what, what, what's a month to, to try and get this thing over with. And Since then, I feel like many of us are just waiting for things to go back to normal. We're just waiting for, can I get back to, like, there was a change, that's fine, but that'll be over. You know, change isn't scary if it's only this temporary thing. But 
for other people, they're in this moment where changing away from their current situation, that feels like the answer. You know, this is temporary. I'll just ride it out. And then I'll arrive at the thing that God actually wants for me. How do we strike the balance of we want to be open to change? We want to be ready for God to come in and change the plan and rearrange things as he sees fit. We don't want to get to a place where we're so change minded. We think we can't really do anything right now until God changes stuff. Like how how do we balance that being ready for God to bring change as he sees fit and focusing on honoring him here and now as long as here and now remains the way that it is? such a great question. And, you know, there, there's kind of like the wider theological question and then there's the practical one. Um, so I'll, I'll start with kind of a very practical. This summer, we had to change all of the plans for the charity that I lead in the festival that I run. And one of my interns who has a sarcastic relationship with me, like came in and she's like, ha ha, you wrote a book on change and then you didn't think God was going to make you live it. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, Mel. Thanks. Love you a lot. Um, because I, it, there's moments, uh, this is something I write about in the book where change just feels like a really violent act. Hmm. And even those of us who love new people, new places, new things, new ideas, it's just nice sometimes to feel safe and secure. Like it, it's nice that moment, you know, just, just envision whatever your like happy space is, but, but I'll play out one of mine, like where you walk to your favorite coffee shop and the sun is shining and you know, you're going to get like a great, like a killer latte and the art's even going to be nice on it. And then you're going to have a snack and it's going to taste good. And then you're going to have some friends who are going to come and enjoy it with you. And you're not going to have to wear a mask and give each other a hug and not think twice. Like just there's something safe and secure. Yours might look different. I realize that mine is very particular, um, but you've got that moment where you're like, okay, I just wish that I could feel safe and secure and know what I was expecting. And this last 18 months, no matter where you've been living, it has been disorienting. We often don't know what shape things are going to look like. We don't know what is or isn't going to be legal. We don't know if Christians are going to be on the side of let's do what's legal or let's not do what's legal. Uh, things have been polarizing that no one would have seen coming. And in addition to all of that, there's a question mark around what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus? And I've mm. never seen a time when the answer to that question feels as controversial and as broad as it does in this particular moment. And mm. ask that question to a handful of people and you'll get a handful of answers. <laughs> and so I think one of the real intentions that the followers of Jesus must decide to make during this time is to really spend time in God's presence and then to hold open-handed the expectation of what this mm. looks like. Uh, this might be a little word for people who are in leadership of some sort, but I have never been through a chapter of my life in leadership where I've seen so many leaders weary, mm. discouraged, disheartened. We read all the stats about pastors quitting the ministry. And this last week I've had two very close friends who are quitting their ministry and who just looked me in the eyes and said to me, Sarah, I am so tired. Hmm. And so I think that in the midst of this moment, I don't necessarily have a full and robust answer to your question, Brian. I, I wish I had a great one, but I, I've, I've realized that it's more about what kind of person I'm choosing to be, even than the things that I am doing. And so I've just asked the Holy Spirit, give me the characteristics of kindness. Let me be a person of peace. Let me carry the love and the gentleness and the tenderness of your Holy Spirit into this place. Spirit of God, work in me a joy that I do not feel right now. 
And it's almost where these kind of core values of the Christian faith, that we would be the people of God filled with the fruits of the Holy Spirit, planting the seeds of this are more important than ever before and also more contested than ever before. And I've mm. certainly experienced in this last chapter more moments where I'm like, I don't know what is happening, but it is spiritual. The, mm. the attack and the questions and the downheart and the discouragement, they feel like they're of a spiritual nature in a way that I've never been able to name before. So for mm. me, it's not about, do we go back to normal or do we find a new normal? Those are big questions. And there's some phenomenal prophetic leaders who are thinking about it in ways that I'm learning from. But the deeper question to me is, am I the kind of person who's bringing honor and glory to the person, the name of Jesus Christ in this moment? And is the way that I'm living bringing forth the ultimate fruits that I'm hoping will happen, even if I'm disoriented in the midst of this moment? Mm -hmm. You may not feel like that is a super robust answer to it, but I really think it is hitting exactly (laughs) what we need. I yeah, same. <laughs> we we all we we all are born American and I feel like every American success story is take the small thing like found your company or your band or your whatever in a garage, watch it slowly grow, overcome all the obstacles and success is when you've gone from I have this small cool thing to now I've grown this to this giant empire. American and dream. Exactly. It's all about growth that we can chart on, you know, charts that move upward, you know, that have that like giant. Exactly. So to change the expectation from doing well in God's kingdom is this kind of American growth ideal of we'll see more people come to this thing. We'll see more people be part of our study. We'll, you know, I've fallen into it with this podcast, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing faithful work and then we'll watch the numbers keep on rising and rising instead of now thinking sometimes they go down (laughs) yeah and that's 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 a wound (laughs) we get bummed here here sometimes read often um like (laughs) we we might we want all of these things to just keep growing and growing Mm. and thinking that that will be god's mark on yes you have been faithful yes you have been doing Mm. good work and i think these last two years have been really good for the church to reimagine wait a second it's not about traditional growth growth in the kingdom is growth of character growth in the kingdom Mm. is becoming more like jesus and if we have a more refined character amongst fewer of us, perhaps, depending on the church location where you're at, that may be Christian growth. But we, we've we never really been trained to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think just as you're speaking of that beautiful scripture that says that the thing that's required of a servant is that they be found faithful. And certainly most of us, to speak for another podcast, are listening to Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and we're thinking about the dynamics of power and narcissism, and what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the 21st century? And I think that there's going to need to be a translation between our theological understanding that it's not about the numbers, that you can't quantify a move of the Spirit of God in that way. Hmm. alongside the fact that uh, we've been trained and schooled in a system where metrics were the goal. So for Hmm. some of the listeners who are even part of the Calvary Chapel movement, which would be a number of us from some sort of background, for better or for worse, the the origin story of Calvary Chapel had numbers attached to it. It had huge Hmm. numbers attached to it. And you still often will say things like, we don't care about the numbers, but we're like, but they planted 1800 churches. Did you know that? 
Um, <laughs> so the reality is detaching our own soul's health from a sense of a number-based metric system is deeper than we might realize because our origin story was all around. It was a handful who became a dozen, who became a hundred, who became a thousand, and then the circus ten, and then it was filled, and then... <laughs> Ta-da! Um, and, and it's beautiful to celebrate the history of revival. I think that celebrating the history of a spirit of God movement working moment is something that I hope I never outgrow. But the reality is we can't quantify the depth of the work that the spirit of God is doing in hearts and lives. And so I've been continually on the learning journey to move away from a numbers-based metric system for faithfulness because we've all seen these moments where there's huge numbers and huge gaps in faithfulness. And I would rather say that at the end of my time, I've loved faithfully one or two, but not failed with spectacular moral failure, rather than I've loved tens of thousands and been equally crippled tens of thousands by not living a full example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's really profound. Um, that's something that I've gone back to over and over again in my mind when I think about Calvary. Um, you know, the first generation Calvary guys, they're the legends, right? They're the ones that built this movement. Um, you know, they're the ones that the Holy Spirit worked through and caused this explosion and this revival and all this stuff. And then I feel like the second generation Calvary guys, which is my dad's generation, they were really riding that wave. And a lot of those guys in the generation, you'll see very big churches. And um, there was a lot of kind of that overflow of what happened in the 60s that poured into them. I think it's really hard for us third generation Calvary guys and girls, um, you know, the millennial Calvary guys, because a lot of us have pastor dads. We're kind of looking at what they did and going, what the heck am I doing with my life? I'm, you know, I'm running a podcast in Oklahoma. Um, you know, <laughs> where, where, where's my church? You know, um, th those are, you know, things that, uh, you know, occasionally flash in, in my mind. And um, it's almost like it, the stories that we tell, if, if we're looking at the church as a hospital, the story that we constantly tell is about the one who built the hospital, but we're not really telling stories about the doctor who just works in it, but you need both things for the hospital to thrive. And that's, that's how I've tried to identify myself is I'm a part of a movement. God did really big things in the past, but he's also doing really big things right now in the present. But my role in that big picture isn't, you know, me doing the big thing. It's being a part of a big thing that's being done. And that's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. It's a big body. It's doing things, but you don't necessarily have to be a big part of the body. <laughs> uh, you're still a part of it. And, and, and that's, that's what I've been trying to remind myself um, is the importance is a, it's being a part of that body. It's not how big your role in it is. And if we're all keeping that mentality, the body's going to focus our, our function the way that it's supposed to, I think, but it, it's just hard. It's hard to remember that. And I think because we'll have listeners who will listen from, I would imagine a variety of strands of church to some oh, extent, yeah. it doesn't matter which strand of church you've come from. It's really True. important to know your spiritual DNA. And then I think something that we've done less of within Christian community, you're a third generation follower of Jesus. I'm a second generation follower of Jesus mm. is been joyfully or helpfully critical about our own spiritual DNA. So mm, yeah. what I mean by that is if, if you were in a, a doctor's office to use a hospital analogy, 
it would be very straightforward for you to sit down with the doctor and say, Hey, I feel fairly fit and healthy today, but on my grandma's side, there's some liver cancer and there's a little bit of alcohol poisoning. And on my grandpa's side, there's some lung cancer and his kidneys gave out. And we're not even sure where his mind is now. Like it'd be normal for you to sit down and say, here's, here's some of the strands of my, my physical DNA. What I don't think we do as healthily is examine our spiritual DNA and say, Mm -hmm. actually, here's some of the beauties. I, I, I feel fairly fit and healthy right now. But here's some of the places that are part of my spiritual DNA that maybe weren't as healthy and that I don't want to Mm. carry into this next chapter. And Mm. I think one of the beauties of this moment is that my friendships and my peers, I'm 38 years old, so I've got lots of friends who've walked with Jesus for quite some time, but still we've got a big chunk of our lives ahead of us. We're hopefully or critically honest about our spiritual DNA. We're like, here's the things that we love. We love that when we read our Bible, we believe that it's true and that it holds power in our lives. We yeah. love that yeah. we can sing a song for all of any passages of scripture. Thank you, John Corson. <laughs> um, we, there's all sorts of things that we love. And yet there's a few things like that slight sense of moral superiority, like others, other Christians, but they're not quite as good as us Christians who read our Bible all the time. We we don't (laughs) want that to be part of our future. I'll stop Mm. now because I could get myself in trouble and we are being, we could do a whole, we could do a whole episode on that. We probably should at some point. (laughs) Um, Do that. I'll give you some names, but like examining your spiritual (laughs) DNA saying, here's some of the places of health, but then here's some of the patterns that I want to not walk in for my future. I love that. Um, I, I want to touch on one other thing with you and, and ask you about one other thing before we move on to the next section. Um, but the question is about identity and, and really just how do you, Sarah, deal with your sense of identity changing as ministry changes? And just to quantify that a little bit with uh, my own experience, uh, I've gone through that a lot lately. Um, you know, youth pastor was identity for me. I'm no longer that. So there's been the enemy at times saying, hey, you're not doing that. Like, what what do you even do? Um preaching. That was something that I, I considered it my craft. I cared a lot about it. I put a lot of effort into how I organized my sermons, how I prepped my sermons, how I preached my sermons. And there's times now where I'm like, am I even a pastor anymore? And the Lord kind of reminds me like, Hey, I've given you that shepherd heart. I've called you to be a pastor, whether you work at a church or not, you are like, you have to figure out how you're going to live out that calling, even though you don't have that sign on your door. But, but when, when, when your situation changes, when your reality changes, your sense of identity shifts. And I think that's a big struggle that, uh, I I've dealt with, Brian has dealt with, and I just know any Christian, uh, is dealing with that right now, especially in, in the shifting sands of the 2020s. I feel like all of us are having an identity crisis. So can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a quote and I, I was struggling as you were speaking to remember who says it, but they say that the way to know whether or not you're ready to be a servant is how you act when someone treats you like one. <laughs> and I found that the the beautiful and honest reality of my ongoing identity questions in ministry have just been, am I actually ready to fully say that I'm a follower of Jesus, ready to be a servant above all? Mm. And I think I've learned that lesson and then I learn it again in a way that's harder. And I think I've learned that lesson and I learn it again in a way that's sharper. Um, and I think that these two things exist in congruent lines for me. First, that Jesus is the only hero of my story and, and that above all, I'm called to serve and love him. But secondly, that I'm beloved. 
that I'm the Mm. beloved daughter of God. And it's almost like the reflective cycle and arc that I see in my life over and over again in ministry. And I think I've learned it. And then I learn it again is that there is no other who receives honor or glory in my life than Jesus. And yet the depth of the love and the kindness of Jesus towards me is more than I could have ever dreamed or imagined. And if someone wants to just kind of embark on that journey, the book that I found most helpful as a companion is a very short book called In the Name of Jesus by Henri Nouwen. And it is the image of the downward mobility of the servant leader. Just that very short book. I I read it at least once a year and I found it's really framing for those two concepts. But I think when it comes down to identity and the particular question that you're asking as well around our role and our public persona and our figure and the space around all of that, in the last 18 months, in so many ways, many of us were stripped of the activities that would have otherwise defined our leadership. And that was maybe Mm, even sharper in the UK than in some places, because we had full Mm. lockdown, can't leave your house. Um, But it stripped back all these other places of identity. Mm. And I think in the midst of that, what I found is to use again, a parable of, of the garden. If my soul was like a garden, there were more weeds than I realized were there. Like there was just some junk in my heart. There was some lust and some bitterness and some jealousy and some Mm. pride. And I would have told you that I'd outgrown those things. And it turns out, I don't think I ever will. Um, But like the spirit of God just began to gently and strongly convict me of some areas that had become identity issues for me. Mm. And I think that when we choose to walk with Jesus and we choose to walk with Jesus for the long haul, and then we choose to walk with Jesus in a way that we allow other people to see our lives as a model of some sense of the gospel. Hmm. And the spirit of God will always be at work reforming our identity to look more and more like Christ. And Hmm. so one of the things that we're saying when we choose to step into any space of public or private leadership is Jesus, I want to look more like you. And I'm going to allow you to do whatever is necessary for that to happen. And recognizing that at times that will be painful and yet Hmm always in the end of this beautiful. Wow. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's so good. I, I know one of the things that God has kind of been showing me, I have a, a group of people that I'm praying about church planting with. And <laughs> one of the things that we keep coming back to, or that I, I don't want to say that as if I was the smart one that thought of it, the thing that Jesus keeps <laughs> slowing me down to focus on, I get these gentle reminders of, you know, if you don't plant a church, I still love you. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, I like, I get that. But but like, you'll love me less, right? Like you'll, you'll be yeah. a little, you'll be bummed, right? Like wow. you'll be at least a little upset. And I think that that's kind of what we all kind of keep hitting with leadership activities getting taken away. There's this fear of if I don't do these things, then who am I? And mm-hmm. I think Jesus has been graciously able to use these times to say, but you're more than those things to me. You know yeah. that, right? And wow. a lot of times the answer in my heart has been, I don't actually know that. Like, I I don't really know that I am more to Jesus than the sermons that I write for him or the podcasts that I produce. And, you know, as God slows us down, we kind of have to face that reality. And the ironic thing, and, and maybe this is me still twisting it and not having it completely sorted out. The ironic thing is when we face that, we become better leaders. We become better servants, which I know in my mind turns to, right, so I'll figure this out and then I'll be a better servant and then Jesus will love me as I serve. And he's like, no, you're missing the whole point. Like he kind of has to kind of keep bringing us back to that. 
Um, well, and, but yeah. and, and, and if I can just add on to that at the end, I feel like, Brian, this is something that you and I have been talking about in a loop on this show uh, for like the last mm-hmm. two years. Um, so obviously we still have some processing to do, but I also feel like God has been teaching us a lot about this. You know, we are not what we do. Our identity is not in what we produce. Um, it's, it's in Christ first. And so, uh, yeah, let Sarah, what, what can, what can you, what can you teach us about that? I, I mean, just that we're all on that journey together. There's a book that mm. I actually haven't read yet. It's called The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Viotis. And uh, write that down. He's, he's the kind of person who everything he writes, like, I can't wait to read this one. But there's this image that I have from it of just being deeply formed. And that reality is that what we're all speaking about is that we think we might've learned something a little bit, and then we recognize there's an even greater depth and intimacy than what we've experienced so far. Mm. And so I think th- these are the places where, I'm not a sage. I'm still medium Mm. young and still learning, but any Mm. sage will tell you there's no compromise. There's no fast forward. There's no microwave version of intimacy with Jesus. And when your life is deeply formed, it is an over and over again, surrender of your identity to him and then recognizing his kindness and his love towards you. Exactly. As you said, Brian, it's like the base gospel message, right? We're loved, not for what we do. We're loved because of who Christ is. Like it's the base gospel message. It takes us our whole lives to wrap our heads around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hopefully the literal first thing you hear in church. And it is still the thing all these years later that I'm trying to actually wrap my mind around and begin to allow to settle in our hearts. Yeah. I I remember reading something that John Mark uh, Comer said at one point, Uh, I don't know if it was in a sermon or just something he posted on social media, but he was talking about how the lessons he was learning himself as a pastor from going to therapy, which is something you don't hear a lot about is is pastors going to therapy. Usually pastors kind of have the mentality of, or at least in our circles of, you know, just pray whatever struggle you have away and you don't need to process anything. But he was talking about how he had come to the realization that he needed to hear he needed to preach to himself. You are not a machine. Mm. You, you are not just a constant producer of spiritual theological con. Like you, you, your purpose foremost is, is a child of God to be loved by him, to love him. And then everything else should just flow out of that. And that's just something I keep coming back to. Cause even, you know, right now in, in my current situation where the ministry I'm trying to do, most of the ministry I try to do these days happens here in front of this microphone. And, uh, <clears throat> It's different than when I would preach to a room and there would be people there and we'd interact afterwards. It's it's weird. It's like putting a message in a bottle and just throwing it out so I can get into this mode sometimes where I'm just like writing, recording, editing, producing, putting it out. And I feel like this robot, you know, where it's like, what do you, what, what ministry even is this? But God graciously, like he, he's, he's sent people to message me and Brian both and just say, Hey, this, this show is so encouraging. This is helping me. Even some pastors, we've had even some guys who are older than us who are pastors who are like, Hey, keep doing what you're doing guys. Cause it's helping us think things through. It's touching our heart. And so, um, I guess I'm even preaching to myself right now that there's a point to all this, but I'm just trying to say it's hard at times. And that's the beauty, isn't it? Anything worth doing is going to be costly. Anything beautiful is costly. And so Mm. there's that reconciling moment of, is this costly because I've chosen to make it costly or is this costly because it's the cruciform image of Christ in us? And I think discerning that is a really valuable moment. But then beyond that, uh, it it is the reality of our lives and ministry that we would continually say that this costs us something and it costs Jesus everything. And it's for this point that it is worth it. Amen.
Final question about changes. What do you think of the David Bowie song, Changes? Ooh, I don't know it because remember that thing I said before about Christian kids, super sheltered, still catching up. Oh, so sadly, I'm man. out of the loop on this one. What do you think one. of the John Mayer song? The oh. one, he's like the one non-Christian accepted artist that all worship leaders are cool with. John Which is Mayer strange and I are still like, waiting for the world to change. Mm. Which is strange because like his personal life is a train wreck. So yeah, it really is. On yeah. so many Let's levels. just trash John Mayer on this podcast. <laughs> Can that be the title for this podcast? <laughs> John Mayer and other failures. What's that <laughs> oh man. Speaking of musical failures, uh, I got drum lessons from Scott Cunningham, piano lessons from Evan Wickham, and guitar lessons from Sean Samino, who went on to be in Foster the People, and I can't play anything. And none Good. of them took. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I know I, and love. I know and love all three of these people, Aaron, and I can't even sing on key. So, uh, can you, you at least sing on key? I wish that your love for someone allowed you to absorb <laughs> their abilities. <laughs> it's like a superhero. Like, because I love you, I can run for miles. Hello, Farah. Because I love you, can I run like you? <laughs> all right, so Sarah, as we're wrapping up, I, I think I think my last question about change has to do with a positive kind of change. And that is the growth that we experience as followers of Jesus. For you, what has been, what have been ways that you've opened yourself up to positive change? Because honestly, as a Christian, you know, I've been a Christian basically my whole life. I feel like there's times where we can kind of plateau and where it's like, we feel like, okay, I've learned a lot. I've studied a lot. I've heard a lot of great sermons. Maybe I'm not you know, particularly struggling with any crazy sin in my life. So we can hit a point where we don't feel this urge to really grow and experience positive change. What, what, what's, what's been your experience with that? Do, do you feel like those, there's times where there's that plateau? And how do you get past it and move towards positive change? Like allowing the Lord to shape you, sort of like the, the classic potter and clay analogy, right? Yeah. So Aaron, one of the things I really love about my own spiritual journey is that almost every place of significant growth or promotion or open door opportunity has been so accidental. And I love know that. it's because the spirit of God knows that I would take credit or be proud of my like strategic growth strategies and my values. And so literally never do I get to take credit. It's all an accident. Um, I'll give you like the classic example of this and anyone who's listening, who knows me will understand how very non-strategic this was, but I, I took my first sabbatical 20 years of ministry, took my first sabbatical last um, July. So intentionally said for these five months, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to spend time with Jesus. I have zero aims for my sabbatical. Now, during that five, during that five month period, I ended up walking 422 miles of the Cornwall coast reading 75 books, <laughs> writing a book, climbing Kilimanjaro and one or two other things, but it wow. was like the, the you know how to restful. rest. <laughs> you sure know how to rest there. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Brian, I'm expecting some sarcastic comments there. Like it, also I climbed Kilimanjaro best humble brag of all time. Right. Like on oh, that one time when I like, I'm just thinking like every time Toto's Africa comes on <laughs> and the line of like, sure is Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus. You're like, oh yeah, me, me and Kilimanjaro are friends now. <laughs> I walked I'm on like its face. Above the Serengeti where I once soared over as well. It yeah, is. you're just like the one person in the pub like, I know that view. Like, have you seen it? I know that view. <laughs> Do you remember that moment? 
Um, I'm really tempted to use Toto's Africa as the outro song on this episode. Please. I might do it. My brother do sent it. me Toto's Africa, and I am so only my temptation if it's sin. I think this is just called inspiration. I think I'm going to do it. Maybe it'll kick in right now. Let's see what happens. All right, keep going. Keep going. Uh, but al- alongside all of that, it has been so often in the spaces where I couldn't tell you I made this strategic plan. It was just I stayed close to the spirit of God and I did the next thing next. Mm-hmm. And I hope in some weird way that might be encouraging for somebody who's listening. They might not do those five things in a five month sabbatical period because the other thing that's happened is for 38 years, my soul has been cultivated and staying close to Jesus. And I know what it is to listen to his voice. But the reality is in no sense were any of those positive changes or accomplishments hugely strategic on my part. But I, I stayed close to Jesus as I looked to him, as I expected goodness in his presence, what he has given me, and that's like a microcosm, has been so much more than I could have ever asked or dreamed. And it's where I found that these scriptures that we know and that we believe and that we preach and that we read, they are truer and yet slightly messier than we ever mm. would have dared imagine. Like we hear them preached as the finished and complete image in which we just say, oh, great. It was exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. <laughs> that must have been easy. <laughs> and the reality is there's been no place in my spiritual journey where I'd be, oh, that was easy. Or, oh, that didn't cost something. Or, oh, that just was straightforward. But the more I have leaned into the presence of Jesus, the more I have found those words exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think, they've just been radically true. So Mm. if you're listening today and you're like, is Jesus good and kind? And does he do more than we ask? Yes. And is it tremendously messy at times very hard and hugely disruptive to our souls? Also, yes, but it is worth it. Mm. That's that's hitting me in all the right places. Seriously. Like I'm legit ready to climb a mountain right now. (laughs) Well, I. I just feel like there's been so many stories where we've discovered that the people in ministry who aggressively marketed themselves and tried to build their own platform, it's like eventually you just find out it's hollow. You find out that that the Lord wasn't really there working through it. It was really just their efforts. And, and in my life, like the ministry I think back on that, that was like the fondest ministry that had the most impact was the stuff that God just led me into. And it wasn't me trying to force any doors open. And right now I think I get kind of antsy because it's like, yeah, I, I like, like I, like I've said several times on this show, I'm not currently working at a church. And so ministry feels weird. It feels disconnected, but the Lord just keeps encouraging me to just sit back, keep your head down, keep being faithful, keep serving, and then just wait for what, for what's next. And you know, even like right, right now with like my son being born, that was such a gift from God. That wasn't really something that was forced. It was something that we longed for. My wife and I had difficulty getting pregnant for a long time. Um, and, 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 and then God just blessed us with this miracle. And, and, and I'm so blessed by what you're saying, Sarah, because it's just this continuous encouragement to not just like sit back and don't do anything, serve the Lord, but don't try to break down doors, like wait for God to open them. Don't, don't, you know, break the windows, wait for him to open them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just imagining the Kool-Aid man bursting through a wall at this point. I'm going to stop talking. But Gosh, there you go. I, can, I mean, to do the less spiritual version of it, I heard Dave Chappelle talk once about sometimes he would try to do things because like, I'm Dave Chappelle, like I should have an idea. <laughs> and he would like try to go on a trip and he used the phrase, but there was no idea in the car. 
And sometimes mm-hmm. the car just pulls up in front of your door and starts honking and is like, hey, I'm the idea. Like you get in. You don't need to know where we're going. Like I am driving. You're yeah. along for this ride. Yeah. And sometimes that's how walking with and particularly serving Jesus is like mm. Jesus comes along with the idea. He calls us into the car. We're along for the ride. But then because we've been part of drives before, sometimes we get antsy and be like, I should be leading a trip like I should be doing something. And we get going and realize like, oh, wait, Jesus actually isn't in this car with me. Like he's he's not the one inspiring this trip. I'm the one trying to make it go. And that leads to failure and burnout and frustration. And then you just got to say, Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hand. This last, I can't do this this on last my own. segment is like the song name dropping moment of our lives. And I just want to let y'all know I'm here for it. <laughs> well, I've had the time of my life. <laughs> I've never felt this way before. <laughs> Oh man. Wow. <laughs> Guys, I'm encouraged by hearing all of this as well. And so I just want to say thank you for and affirm the the podcast series and the recordings that you guys are doing because I think these kinds of honest and open conversations, they just remind us we're all ordinary people learning to follow mm. Jesus. And that's mm. sometimes messy and sometimes miraculous. But just like in the stories of scripture, it's in his presence that the breaking of the bread becomes more than just here's a piece of bread, but here's the feeding for the multitudes. And so mm. as I look at my life, one of the ongoing parables is it's in the broken places that others are fed. And so I, I pray that even the little broken bits that we're sharing today and the little song shout out analogies and the moments where I've laughed real hard during this recording <laughs> uh, might also feed us with something of the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much, Sarah. This has been really, really cool. And I, you know, I'm, I'm loving getting to know you over the last couple of years. It's weird. It, it feels like I've known you forever, but, uh, it's only been a few years that we've actually, you know, like, like developed a friendship. So I'm really blessed by that. And I'm really blessed that you're here, uh, chatting with us. Um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience. Mm-hmm. And, thank you. Uh, this has been a great, great talk. So Until we next really appreciate time. it. Yes. All right. We'll let you go. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, hey, take a minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find out about this show. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners, and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about it on the show, go to goodlion.io slash questions. You can submit a question and you can upvote the questions that you'd like to see us answer the most. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, CGN, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.